having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, and sometimes there are no words to express things that we go through and things that our family and friends go through, but yet we can find comfort in knowing that you fully became human so that you would know our pain, you would be able to empathize with our suffering, you would know what it's like when we cry out in mourning. And so, Father, we ask that this would be comfort to us as we hear your word this morning, Be with Gary as he speaks and affirm him to to bring your word forth to us and help us to be transformed in what we hear as you speak to the depths of our hearts in only ways that you know how to touch us and to help us to listen, Father. And so we ask that we would be open to what you have to say so we can bring forth your love to those who need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, friends. The reason why I'm wearing my glasses is because Jenny dressed me this morning, and uh, she did some research, and she learned that if you wear your glasses, you are 80% more likely to be deemed more credible as you speak. So that's why I have my glasses on. Uh, no, but seriously, it is just a pleasure to be with you guys this morning. Uh, it's a tough act to follow after Clint. Clint was amazing. You know, these are big shoes to fill with like Rick preaching. Even, even Jenny's, like, I looked at, like, I kind of, I went to take a look at how, when was the last time I spoke up here? And it was two and a half years ago. And since then, Jenny's, Jenny's spoken like, I think eight times. So if you're comparing me to her and you, in the end, you're like, you know what? Jenny's much better. I won't take offense. I totally won't take offense, but yeah, I, I am absolutely just honored to be here with you guys this morning. Would you agree with me that it is much easier to remember a worship song than a sermon? Think about that. Think about the sermon that you heard last week or the week before. What was the title? What were the three points? Do you remember the examples? 
let me know. I'm going to let Clint know. <laughs> what was the application? Now, th- now think about your favorite worship song. Think about your most favorite worship song. We all have one. What is the title? What are the words? What is the message of the good news? Would you agree that most of our theology comes from music and songs? I was going to sing, and I'm kind of nervous because I don't have a guitar in front of me, so it's just, I just feel really naked. But, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. You realize that within that song, it took the church almost 500 years to come to an agreement that there was such thing as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, the song that I've been leading lately has been one of my favorite. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. Well, just sing with me. That way I don't feel so awkward. For by my side, the Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, His power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, He will lead. Oh, the night has been won. And I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Can you hear the echoes of Scripture throughout the song? The first two lines should bring you to a particular passage in Mark fifteen thirty-three. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the forsaken one, was sacrificed so that we would not be forsaken. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. Do you hear Paul? Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. The next two lines. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Psalm 23. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Romans 13, the night is almost over. The day is almost here. Close yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it should be no surprise that worship songs is the chosen vehicle God has used to predominantly teach scripture and theology. I already hear Peter already just like, no, it's books, it's sermons, it's scripture itself, but there is no denying, just solely based on YouTube views alone. So I wanted to take a look at YouTube. The greatest Billy Graham sermon, 1971, 1.8 million views. Pretty impressive. Francis Chan, he had a five-minute little like snippet, 900,000 views. Tim Keller, 451,000 views. 
Could you guess how many people have watched What a Beautiful Name by Hillsong? 345 million views. One of my prayers is that God will continue to use godly men and women to continue to write new songs that are inspired by Scripture, filled with the Holy Spirit, that takes us deeper into a profound experience with Jesus Christ, our Savior. Are there good worship songs? Absolutely. Are there horrible ones? Yes, I agree. Um, but it takes a community to be able to like vet some of these songs. We're imperfect men and women who write songs are imperfect, and yet somehow there is still a richness in the worship that we sing, and we can only attest that to, to God. This morning, can I be so bold as to say that the song that Jenny just read in Scripture, the song that Doug just read earlier in Scripture, may well be the greatest worship song that has ever been written. The greatest? Surely it can't be greater than, I'm picking on Peter True, his favorite worship song, I Can Sing of Your Love Forever. (laughs) Uh, Again, you know, there's there's some awesome worship songs and there's some worship songs that are just like, what is it talking about? But yeah, I I want to suggest that the, the, the hymn that we just read, especially from Psalm, sorry, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 11, may be the greatest worship song ever written. And this is why. I'm going to go through this. I'm going to try to unpack this for us this morning. It is the greatest song, I think, because it summarizes perfectly the work of Jesus Christ. And it can be summarized in one word, humility. Let me read this again. Who being in very nature God, did not consider, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that every name of, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, I believe that 2,000 years ago, you inspired Paul, the apostle, to remember this song. That this song was not only known to Paul, but also known to the church at Philippi. So we thank you for recording this song for us. And as we journey through this song, you will reinvigorate our love and passion for you, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Most scholars don't believe that Paul wrote the song or this hymn. In fact, we don't know who wrote this song. We do not know or have any music 
um, of how this song sounds, but man, it would be great to know how, how the early church sang this song. In fact, it was only a hundred years ago that scholars discovered that this was in fact the song. Only a hundred years ago. So based upon recent biblical interpretation by analyzing the syntax and the grammar and the words, they were able to realize, hey, wait a second, this isn't just some words that Paul crafted together. This was indeed a hymn that the church uh, was singing in 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 the early days, perhaps even a poem. Even if you take a look at your Bibles, um, at least, I'm not too sure how it looks like on the digital apps, but even in our Bibles, it's kind of written and spaced out as if it was a poem or a hymn or a song. So here's the situation in Philippi. Paul, their church planter, is in prison. The church in Philippi are being persecuted for the refusal to call Caesar Lord. And so before we get into the application, because I read verses 1 to 5 earlier before, we need to look at the verses from 6 to 11 and see what it has to say. One of my preaching professors had this to say to me. He said, before we are able to hear the good news, or before we are able to apply any good advice, we need to listen to the good news. I'll repeat that again. Before we're able to follow any type of good advice, we need to hear the good news. So let me kind of go through the form of the song. So the best way to understand this song is by thinking of it as a U or a parabola, if you're like a geek in math, okay? And so it starts off by Jesus before he was human, and then it makes this journey to the descent where Jesus becomes a human. It descends even further where Jesus dies on the cross, and then the song exalts Jesus up to the highest place. So just this is kind of like the, the form of the song. You follow me? That's it. Everyone do this. It's just a, it's just a you, okay? Um, and that will help us to understand how this song is, is laid out for us. So I'm going to break, I'm going to break down the, the next three verses, and I want us to, this is the really hard part, this is kind of the geeky part, so just stay with me, and then we'll get to the, the good stuff, because Yannicka is going to come up and share, and that's going to be even way more exciting than what I have to say. Okay? No pressure, Yannicka. Um, Verse 6, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped? Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped? So verse 6 tells us that at the very beginning, Jesus was God. Taken right out from John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that part were very clear. But I want you to think about the scenario. Clint got me thinking last week when he, he was talking about the Holy Spirit and the Trinity and the Father and the Son having this conversation. And so I'm thinking about this conversation that the Trinity is having. This, may, this is just my imagination. Okay? This, is, this is not recorded in Scripture whatsoever. Think about the scenario. God the Father, God the Son, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are having this conversation about what they're going to do to save humanity. Adam and Eve has failed. The people of Israel has failed. They've been sent to exile three times. They wouldn't repent, and they failed. 
So what are we supposed to do? Holy Spirit, I know what we can do to get rid of all these evil people and wipe them all. We'll just like, we'll just send a flood and just wipe these people out. Father's like, yeah, we tried that. Remember Noah, you know, flood, big boat, animals two by two. Oh yeah, that's right. Why don't we raise up a king and he'll rule over all the earth and all dominion will be under this king and there'll be this new kingdom of the people of God. Yeah, we tried that. Uh, remember David? You know, remember King Solomon and all these other kings that came after? Right. Okay, let's just send Jesus down and he'll just be like Terminator guy. Just blast out all the bad guys and we'll be, we'll be rid of all the bad guys. Father's like, oh yeah, sounds fantastic. Jesus, what do you think? Yeah, I'm not going to do that. What? You don't, you, you don't want to do that? Like, oh, wait a second. What's that movie that we just saw, Father? Um, oh, Avengers Endgame. We can give you a gauntlet. You can snap your fingers and everyone would be dead. And then Jesus like, yeah, then everyone would be dead. Nah, not doing that. So the Holy Spirit and the Father are thinking, so what are you going to do? I'm going to become a human being. What? Are you kidding me? Now, I'm pretty sure that's not how the conversation went. I'm just using my imagination. But can you hear the verse? Who being in very nature God did not consider... I want to land on that for a second. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Did not consider. NRSV has he did not regard. The NLT has he did not demand. And the message says he did not think. So when Jesus was thinking about with the Trinity, thinking how we're going to save humanity... This is how I translate it. It never occurred. It never crossed Jesus' mind that his first option was just to be God. Not to be human. I'm going to use all my power, I'm going to use all my might, and I'm going to save humanity just as God. Never once considered. The word grasped, the Greek is herpagmos. And this is how it's translated. To seize for personal gain. To take advantage. To exploit. As a fallen human being, if I knew I had even one iota of an advantage to get ahead, wouldn't I use it? If I was stronger, or smarter, or faster, wouldn't I use that advantage? So here's my question. Why, why did Jesus not use that advantage? Why did he not use it? Look at verse 7. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. 
he made himself nothing. That's the NIV's translation. In the NRSV and NLT, it says, he emptied himself. Some scholars have translated this as, he poured out himself. He poured out himself. So Jesus, being very much God, is God, poured everything into the living constraints of a human person. It is really, really hard to understand what that means. Have you ever taken Mentos and put it in a Coke bottle? That's kind of like what Jesus does, but doesn't destroy humanity in the process. He poured out his very essence into humanity, into the living constraints of a human being. But not just any human. No royalty, no prestige, no wealth, no status. There's a MMA fighter that I'm following in China. Um, yeah, China's coming up with a lot of great stuff. Um, <laughs> too soon? Too soon? Sorry. Um, and there's this MMA fighter, uh, and he has this thing called hashtag fake kung fu. And so what he's been doing over the last two years is he's been picking fights with like Tai Chi masters, Wing Chun masters, uh, Wushu masters, just anyone who's like some kind of like Kung Fu master, he's been taking them on. And it's quite, it's, it's quite entertaining to watch because the fight only lasts for 30 seconds. Like he's just an MMA trained guy, he, he meets one of the Tai Chi guys, and then within two seconds, guy's ground, bow, 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 whistle blows, the game's over. And, and sometimes I wonder, and there's one scene, there's one fight, where it wasn't this guy, but another guy, he had his hand behind his back, and he was just fighting all these like kung fu masters, and he was winning, but he was taunting them. And in my fallen state, I was wondering, well, is this what Jesus is doing? Is, is Jesus kind of like tying both hands behind his back and say, okay, I'm going to save humanity, I'm going to take on the devil, this is what I'm going to do. Is, is this what he's doing? Surely not. Surely not. When we take a look at the passage, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And the Greek word for servant here is doulos. And there are two trans- possible translations, translations for doulos. One translation of doulos is one who is in bondage. Someone who is a slave to. That's one aspect of that definition. But the other definition is Someone who has no privilege or rights, but whose sole purpose is to be at the service of. But rather as someone who has no privilege or rights, but whose sole purpose is to be at the service of. So the question is, why did Jesus become human? Why did he, want, why did he become human? And one scholar by the name of Gordon Fee has this to say. In Christ Jesus, God has shown his true nature. That this is what it means for Christ to be equal to God. To pour himself out for the sake of others and to do so by taking the role of a slave. See, all of us, when we think about 
God we think of as omnipotence, all-powerful, his omnipresence, all-powerful, his omniscience, all-knowing, and we use those terms for God. But yet Jesus wants to redefine for us what God is like. And he is the one who pours himself out at the service of others. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus became human. He became a servant. His sole purpose, to suffer, to die on the cross for us. To die on the cross. Do you realize at this time when Paul is writing this, there's no way that anyone would be wearing a cross in the first century? So no one in Philippi, no one in the early church would have used the cross as a symbol of their faith. There were no gold crosses. No one wore it as jewelry. It was not embossed on their Bibles. There was no cross on the top of the house churches. In fact, the cross didn't even become a symbol of our faith for Christians until the 4th century. It was scandalous to die on the cross. It was reserved for criminals and insurrectionists. And so on the cross, Jesus shows that he is love. That his love is expressed in self-sacrifice. So on the cross, with all its cruelty, with all the humiliation, executed by the ones he had created, dying the death reserved for disobedient slaves and insurrectionists, Jesus dies on the cross. There's a passage of scripture that I want us to take a look at really quickly. And it's found in Luke chapter 4, verse 1 to 12. It's the temptation of Jesus. And so as I was preparing for this message, I understand that I don't understand what it means to be like Jesus or to be like God. But it wasn't until I cross-referenced and took a look at this temptation of Jesus that for a little bit of a second, I can kind of understand what it is like to be Jesus. If you remember from Luke 4, it's the temptation of Jesus. There are three scenarios that takes place. The devil says, if you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. The second temptation. Take a look at Jerusalem and take a look at all the kingdoms. I will give you all authority and splendor. Just worship me, and it's all yours. And then the third temptation, if you are the Son of God, he takes him out to a high place and says, if you throw yourself down from here, surely the angel will come and rescue you. And so for the longest time, I just thought those, those three temptations were just, it didn't really quite sink in what the, grad, you know, what the gravity of the temptation was for Jesus. If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. What is Satan challenging? 
aren't you the son of God? Seize your power for personal gain. Take advantage of your special privilege. And in the hymn, in the song in Philippians, we read, he did not consider. Not once. Did not consider that he was going to take advantage of his power for his personal use. Number two, I will give you all of the, I'll give you all the authority and splendor if you worship me. All of this is yours. All the kingdoms, all the power, all the rule, I'll give it to you. And so what is Satan trying to tempt Jesus with? What's the use of being God if you can't have authority over people? And not just authority, but to take advantage of that authority. To be served at. At hand and feet. The third temptation. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here and see if the angels will pick you up. You won't be hurt. The devil, Satan, quotes Psalm 91. And that's scary. Even, even Satan knows our scripture very well. And this is the scheme of Satan. And this is what kind of drove it home for me. And I understand the gravity of why Jesus became human. This is what, so this is what Satan's thinking. If I can convince Jesus to just double check that he can be saved from death at this moment, perhaps when he goes to the cross, Jesus will ask God to save him and not follow through with his plan. Am I stretching a bit? Because for me, is it like I've never jumped off a building, obviously, and, sur- and like survived. Um, I'm, I'm standing proof here that I'm never going to do that, hopefully. But for Jesus, who has all the power at his disposal, could do that. Like, he, he could. It's at his, and it's at his power. But he doesn't fall for the plan. Because he knows that the ultimate obedience for himself is to go to the cross. And so we read, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What an amazing Savior we have. I think about all the different guys that have presented themselves over centuries. This is the only God who becomes human. who humbles himself out of service. Let me read Philippians 2, 1-5. Do nothing out of selfish selfish ambition or vain, vain conceit, but humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I've been talking for a while, so I'm going to invite everyone to stand up for a second.
a really, really simple exercise. I want you to sit down if you don't have any food in your fridge or pantry. I want you to sit down if you don't have clothes on your body. Please, please, no one sit down. (laughs) Sit down if you have a roof over your head and a place to sleep. If you don't, if you don't, sorry, that toy, I was like, what? How'd how'd that work? (laughs) Stay standing, stay standing. If you're still standing, you're richer than 75% of the world. If you have a salary of $20,000, you are considered the top 8% in the world. I'm collecting EI right now. I'm making 20000 Is that right? One, two, three, four. Yes, yeah, I'm, make, I'm making more than 20000 right now. And I'm, and I'm richer than 8% of the world. It's staggering. You guys can have a seat. Thank you. How are we going to use that privilege to serve the world? How are we going to use that privilege to serve the person beside us? How are we going to use that privilege to serve the people in our community? From time to time, I hear these conversations. Not here, because you guys are here. But I do hear this. Yeah, I just, you know what, I'm just looking for the church that's going to meet my needs. You know, I'm looking for a children's ministry that's going to meet my needs. Or that, yeah, I don't like that church. They, they don't have a youth ministry that meets my needs. I'm not going to that church because their pastor, their sermons, it just doesn't meet my needs. Ah, the music. The music doesn't meet my needs. And and I find it a really, really sad, sad conversation when I hear brothers and sisters in Christ in North America, who is perhaps the most privileged people on the face of the planet at any time in history. In fact, it's been said that the, even those who are in poverty live in such luxury over Louis the whatever, 8th, ninth, 10th, and the 11th, and so on, even with all his royalty. This is the danger of the prosperity gospel as well, too, that we sometimes hear. And sometimes we feel so entitled that if I believe hard enough if I serve more faithfully enough that somehow God's going to reward me and make me even richer than I already am? How does that make any sense? For Paul, when we read earlier in Philippians, he had only two options for his life. The one option is either to live and serve Christ. Oops. And the second is to die and be with Christ. Let me read. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. 
I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. For Paul, there's only two options. Either he was going to die and be with Christ, or second, he was going to live for Christ in the here and now. I'm going to ask Yannicka just to come up and share just a little bit of her testimony. Hi. <laughs> um, I recently shared about my health journey on Facebook, and I know that some of you have seen the post, but I'm going to briefly share um, here uh, for those who haven't read it. In short, uh, for decades I've had complaints of random ailments. I always thought these ailments, uh, of these ailments as independent of each other and treated them that way too. Uh, it always seemed to me that people around me were typically strong and healthy, and I always seemed to have some random ache or pain or inflammatory reaction to an activity others would have no problem with. Often the pain I experienced caused me to be unable to freely do the things I love to do, uh, reading books, scrapbooking, um, and more recently lifting my babies out of their cribs became nearly impossible. Uh, since the birth of my children, I started uh, struggling making uh, it through the night. Uh, no matter what I did and no matter how much medication I'd take, I'd wake up with horrible back pain around 3 or 4 every morning. The pain was often so sharp and constant that I could barely breathe while sitting up in bed. At times, the pain in my hips was so bad that Fong would have to help me out of bed in the mornings. And on a good day, my neck and back would be so stiff that I couldn't see my toes when trying to look down. I went through four mattresses in one year, only to find out I was the problem and not the mattress. The stiffness and pain would gradually leave after four to five hours of waking up every day. And most people would never guess anything was wrong with me, including my doctors. Every medical professional I saw, um, a family doctor, acupuncturists, physiotherapists, massage therapists, they all washed their hands of me, saying I didn't respond to treatment like a normal person and that nothing else, and that there's nothing else they could do for me. X-rays were normal, blood tests came back normal, and I was told sometimes we start thinking we have pain even though there's no evidence of it, which to me sounded like it's all in your head. Eventually, I was able to convince my doctor to send me for an MRI. Ten and a half months later, uh, last October, my family doctor called and said, the good news is that you don't need back surgery. The bad news is that there is inflammation around your spine, which suggests evidence of some sort of inflammatory arthritis. I'm going to send your MRI results to a rheumatologist, and I want you to know this is good news and that there are treatment options. So at first I was thrilled with the news, uh, thinking uh, I knew it wasn't just in my head. And as it turns out, I have an inflammatory autoimmune disease called ankylosing spondylitis, or AS, uh, for which uh, there's no cure. Um, there's, it's a form of arthritis that causes pain, stiffness, and eventually uh, fusion uh, in mainly the spine and SI joints. Blood tests confirmed that I have a genetic predisposition for it, and it just decided to really aggressively start manifesting in the last number of years. Unfortunately, the wait to see a rheumatologist is several months long, and I'm still waiting for my appointment. However, after doing lots of research on mainstream treatment for AS, 
I got pretty discouraged as the strong drugs that were often prescribed are extremely expensive, can have terrible side effects for many people, and also many people seem to report that the medication eventually stopped being effective, which would then allow for disease progression and left people to suffer as they searched uh, for a new medication that would hopefully help calm the terrible pain. None sounded great to me, so I started searching for alternative treatment options. I came across a Facebook support group that was made up of thousands of people with this disease, many of whom had been able to stop progression of this disease and were living a pain-free life simply by changing their diet. It sounded pretty great until I realized I needed to cut down to about a handful of foods for a period of a few months until I healed and started to feel better and that it would be followed with a completely starch-free and refined sugar-free diet likely for the rest of my life. Pretty well all my comfort foods are breads and other carbs, so it sounded impossible to begin with. Then I learned that many, many other food items have starches, including many fruits and vegetables, such as apples, bananas, carrots, beets, and even black pepper, to name a few. Add to that, Christmas was around the corner. The diet was an alternative, but not an an appealing alternative. But I felt that my options were limited as I didn't want to be heavily medicated for the rest of my life. And I didn't want to live a life of pain where stiffness and fusion of my spine would disable me. I was in immense pain for which regular medication wasn't helping and my first visit with a rheumatologist was still months away. So I had nothing to lose by starting the diet. So I started the diet and ditched all the medication I had been on I picked approximately 10 proteins and vegetables that made made up my diet for those weeks. I felt pretty miserable. I missed my carbs and sugars terribly. And physically, I was even uh, in even more pain than starting before starting the diet. For pretty well all of November and December and most of January, I was in more pain than before the di- diagnosis. I decided to narrow my diet even more to only broccoli and chicken and bone broth for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Finally, halfway through January, I started to feel better. And in the last two weeks, even unmedicated, I slept through the night without waking uh, from pain every single night. I've even had a few completely free days, uh, pain-free days. I hope and pray that my progress will continue and that I'll be able to start eating a few more foods soon. So Gary asked me to share a five-minute testimony here today. And the truth is that Until recently, I haven't thought of my story as a testimony of God's great work of healing. I prayed for healing for years, and my symptoms kept getting worse. Then eventually, I became a bit jaded when it came to praying for healing because it seemed pointless. We are told to pray with faith and boldness. We are told to pray expecting that God will do miracles. But we're not always told that the healing we pray for may not come in the form that we had expected. And that can be discouraging. And it can cause us to lose faith in a God who is able but apparently not willing to heal. A few weeks ago, we sang a new song here at North Point. It's called Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. And the lyrics hit so close to home. After church, I messaged Gary to ask him for the title of the song so that I could look it up on YouTube and listen to it on repeat for the next few days, uh, many times with tears streaming down my face, here are some of the lyrics that stood out to me. 
The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side the Savior he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. With every breath I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. I'm learning again that God's goodness doesn't depend on whether or not he chooses to heal me physically. His promise to us is not a physical healing, but a promise of hope for what is yet to come, a promise to never leave our side in this world of suffering. And of course I thank God for physical healing, if that continues, but more so I thank God for strength for each day, for staying by my side, and for friends and family who are walking the journey alongside me. And the question I come back to is, why did Jesus have to become a human being? Why did he choose this way to save humanity? Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in the humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who hold the power of death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And here's the most important point. Because he himself suffered, he is able to help those who suffer. We have an amazing God that chooses to take our form. There's a song that used to bother me. And it used to go something like this, that Jesus never changes. Through history, through the present, through the future. But I honestly believe, and you may call me a heretic, that when Jesus became human, it changed the game. It changed the Trinity. Think about it. God has never been a human being. He is holy, He doesn't know what it's like to be in fallen state, into our fallen humanity. And yet he took it up so that he could understand every one of our sufferings. Every suffering we go through. It may not be the exact circumstance, but I can guarantee you that Jesus has felt shame, pain, loneliness, despair. Every possible human experience Jesus has met. What an amazing God we have. Thank you, Yannicka, for sharing your story. I love the humility in your testimony when I first read it. 
there's no expectation. There's no entitlement. It's just, if God heals me or not, doesn't matter. Because Jesus loves me. And that's what makes North Point so amazing. I love how every one of you guys serve out of humility and not out of a place of entitlement. Every one of you. I met up with Rick last week. And I asked him, what's going to be the one thing that you're going to miss the most? He said, of all the churches that he's ever pastored, he's never met a group of people so humble and so servant-oriented. And I said, I count it a privilege to call you friends and call you family. I see God also working in the world as well, too. I'm, I'm a complete optimist. I will be a guy that the glass is always full. I do not have a doomsday approach to history. I believe the kingdom is here. I see how God is working through people to make this place a resemblance of his kingdom. Um, there's a guy that I've been following. His name is Dan Price. He owns a company called Gravity. Uh, he's a multimillionaire. He provides points of service sales solutions for small entrepreneurs and small businesses. And the reason why he's famous is not because he looks like Jesus. Because uh, he was definitely, like, he kind of looks a little bit more like Jesus. He has, at least, not blonde hair and blue eyed. But this guy, 2017, I'm just, I'm stealing Clint, that's all. 2017, he decides, he looks at his staff, and some of them are making $10 an hour. And he felt this injustice that there should be no way I'd be, I should be making a million dollars, over a million dollars, and my staff can barely have enough to feed their family. So he made this bold claim. I'm going to reduce my salary to $70,000 so that every one of my staff can make $70,000. I was just absolutely blown away. So blown away. He's not even a Christian. And that's why I know the Holy Spirit is working in our midst. Uh, Jenny and I had uh, the very, very rare privilege to pray with uh, John and Erica a couple nights ago. And the amount of faith and grace they have was just, it blew me away, blew us away. Because in my brokenness, I would feel like I'm entitled. My child doesn't deserve to die. The second child that they've lost. And yet, they walk with such faith and such grace. And they're serving our church in such tremendous ways as well. During this time of transition, while we're waiting for our transition pastor, eventually our new senior pastor, can you do me a favor and just read through Philippians 2, 1 to 11? Maybe tonight, maybe during this week, during the months to come. And just ask this question. Found in in verse 5, do we have the attitude that is the same of Christ Jesus? And if the answer is yes, could you ask, 
how else can I serve my brothers and sisters in the church? How else can I serve my brothers and sisters in my neighborhood? How else can I serve my brothers and sisters in this world? My challenge is that we will abide in the humility of Jesus and that we'll go out and serve in humility. Let's pray. Father God, as I read through the story of Scripture, I'm always amazed by how faithful, how patient, how gracious, and how merciful you are with us. And Father, I thank you that even while we were sinners, you still died for us. And even for someone like myself who's been a Christian for ages, I still have the same issues with entitlement. I still think of my selfish needs over the needs of others. And yet your spirit constantly is drawing me and us to greener pastures, one in which we are in service to one another. And so, Father, I pray that by your Spirit that you would just touch our hearts. Maybe we just need to hear the good news again that, hey, I am worthy of being saved. That I am worthy of being loved. And there is no shame and condemnation in your presence. And I thank you that as you transform us, you don't leave us where we are. You continue to use us words and all. We thank you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to be taking a time of communion together this morning. And I remember younger, when I was younger, I used to think that this table was only a place for people who were holy and pure. And you'd hear this in our congregations that, hey, if you don't have things right with God, you can't participate. You hear that? used to think, well, that's such a tragedy. Because if we're screwed up and we're all broken, this is the place you need to come to. It's not a place where we have to perfect ourselves and get our crap together before we can partake. And so if you're on a journey of discovering who this Jesus is, I invite you to come up. Uh, Nancy and Jenny, if you could come up at this point. And so we've got three stations here. And you can come as a couple or come individually. And on the night that Jesus betrayed, he took up the bread and said, this is my body given to you. And do this in remembrance of me. He took up the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament that says that I will write my law upon your hearts. I will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the new covenant. Pour it out for our sins. So I invite you at this time, you can come up and partake.